gang, if you brought a Bible, turn to John's biography in the 20th chapter, okay? Go to John's gospel and the 20th chapter. We'll read there in just a moment. Spring is upon us, of course, and uh, I have a lot of weddings on my calendar. I've had three in the last six weeks. I've got another two coming up. You know, they say that marriage changes everything. Those of you who remember what it was to be single and then how everything changed when you got married, you know what I'm talking about. A few years ago, I married my nephew, Pete, to his wife, Mary. I, we tried to talk Mary out of it, but she went through with it anyway. Uh, and believe me, everything changed for my nephew. However, it changed even more a few months ago when they had their first baby. Everybody knows that marriage is one kind of transition, but oh boy, when you bring that first child into your life... Oh, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? But now, if you're a parent and you have more than one child, you know that you change with every baby, don't you? Your third child doesn't get the same treatment the first one got, right? I mean, I thought about this this weekend, and I decided to make a list. First of all, moms, let's talk about your clothing. Let's talk about your clothes when you find out you're pregnant. You see, for your first baby... You rush out and buy maternity clothes just as soon as the doctor confirms your pregnancy, right? Because you're so excited, right? But not that way for your second baby. Your second baby rolls along and you try to wear your regular clothes just as long as possible before you transition. But now by the time the third baby rolls around, let's face it, your maternity clothes have become your regular clothes, right? Let's talk about your worries as a first-time mother. Man, when that first baby arrives, at the first whimper, the first frown, the first scowl, what do you do? You rush and pick up the baby to console it. It's not that way with the second one rolls around, is it? When it comes to the second one, the only reason you pick that child up is if her whales are going to wake up the first one, Right? And by the time the third baby rolls around, you've already taught your three-year-old how to crank up that mechanical swing. They can just solve their own problems, right? Isn't that true? When you get married and you have your first child, it's very difficult to go out and have any alone time. It's very difficult for husbands and wives to, to go out, to have a meal in peace. When you have your first baby, you go out and you call the babysitter five times during the evening, right? By the time you have the second child, you find yourself getting in the car and leaving and then you remember, oh, I've got to give the babysitter my phone number in case of emergency. But by the time that third baby rolls around, you give the babysitter very specific instructions, don't call me unless you see blood. <laughs> Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Here's my favorite right here. My favorite is this last one. When you're at home. When you're a first-time mother and you're at home, you find a little time every day to just stare at your baby to just look into those beautiful eyes and hold that child to your chest. When the second baby rolls around, you spend a good bit of every day watching one child to make sure he's not squeezing, pinching, poking, or hitting the baby. But by the time the third child rolls around, and you know this is true, moms, you find a little bit of time every day just to hide from all the children, right? Well, guess what? Easter changes everything. Easter is the most important day to Christianity. Without the resurrection, I said this earlier, we wouldn't have this. Easter changed my life. Easter has changed 
many of your lives as well. I'd like to begin today by getting you to participate by filling in the blank. How would you complete that statement? God is... If I were to complete that statement, the first thing that pops in my mind, God is all-powerful. God can do anything he chooses. God created the universe and all there is, and he can do anything he wants to with it. We call that omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of God. Some of you might complete it this way. God is with me. God is near me. God hears me when I pray, and that's very comforting to you. We call that the omnipresence of God. He is everywhere at one time. But some of you might be a little more skeptical. And as I said earlier, I get that. You might be thinking to yourself, God is unknowable. How can we know for sure? Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but it really doesn't have much of an impact on my life. We call that agnosticism. But some of you still, and there are millions like you all around the world in churches just like this one, who would complete that statement this way. God is whatever I want him to be. I like this from Christianity. I like this from another religion. I like that idea from a third. We call that universalism. We call that syncretism. You know what the Bible says? The Bible would complete that statement as follows. God is love. It says so. God is love. It comes from 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. God is love, John the Apostle wrote. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. The Bible says that God is love. God is light. God is life. There are innumerable adjectives in your New Testament that describe God. He is truthful. He is just. He is patient. He is kind. He is fair. He is merciful. He is gracious. But note, those are all adjectives. I didn't say God is loving. The Bible says God is love. And love is a noun. And John goes on to say that when we live in love, we are very much like God. For God is living in us, and that's why we love. A famous 17th century scholar and theologian named Matthew Henry wrote the following, God has incomparable, incomprehensible love for us, which is demonstrated in the mission and the mediation of his beloved son. Matthew Henry is talking about this weekend. He's talking about the sacrificial death on Friday and the crucial resurrection on Sunday. We typically cheer for love, do we not? Typically, we fall on the side of love, not hate. Good, not evil. Light, not darkness, right? I mean, I can vividly remember way back in the day when I played ball, my parents cheered for me. Why? Because they wanted to see a good game? No, they loved their son. And if I lost or if I didn't play particularly well, my dad was as miserable as I was. Why? Because he loved me. And my mom would try to console me. Why? Because she loves me. We cheer for our hero in our favorite book or on the big screen. We, we know deep down that love is superior. We want love to win, don't we? 
parents know all about love. That's why you sacrifice for your children. That's why you give up so much for your baby. It's because you love them. Well, Easter is a story of love. Easter is a story of love, for God is love. And if you know the story of Easter, you know that in the end, love is triumphant. Light overpowers darkness. Life is victorious over death. That is Easter. You cannot read the biography, biographies of Christ, and there are four in your New Testament, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially during the last week of Jesus' life and miss the love. You, you, just, you just can't miss it. It's everywhere. It's on every page. Every page you turn in that last week of Jesus' life, he's demonstrating his love. I think about Palm Sunday, and we talked about this last time. Jesus entered the city on a borrowed donkey, and everybody chanted his name, and they sang songs of celebration. They waved the palm branches. They threw down their cloaks so that he could pass by. But they didn't love him. They loved what he could do for them. You see, he was their Messiah. He would be their next king. Jesus would take the throne in Israel and would overthrow the Roman domination. So finally, everyone would be happy. Everyone would get what they want, but Jesus could see ahead. He knew what Friday held for him. He knew all about the suffering and the humiliation, the torture, and the crucifixion. Even on Sunday, Palm Sunday, it appears that love is losing. Very early in the week, Jesus goes to the temple, and he finds the money changers, because of their greed, they had turned his father's house of worship, his house of prayer, into a den of thieves. You see... During Passover, every family was expected to make sacrifice. And rather than bring an animal with you on your journey to Jerusalem, that was terribly inconvenient, you just bought one while you were there. But the money changers looked at a way to capitalize on the worship and line their pockets with healthy paychecks. And Jesus turned over their tables and drove them out with a whip. He said, my father's house is a house of prayer. You've turned it in to a den of thieves. They didn't get it. It appears love is losing. On Thursday night, according to John chapter 13, Jesus gathered with his disciples to share the Passover meal. And the night began with Jesus washing their feet. He took on the humble role of a servant. He knelt down on the ground and he washed their dirty feet. They didn't think enough of each other to wash each other's feet. None of them even volunteered to wash Jesus' feet in return. But no, he washed theirs because of his great love. No, they were too busy arguing over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who was going to get the chair right next to Jesus when he took the throne of Israel? That's where their mind was. That night, they sat around the table eating the meal and Peter assures Jesus of his loyalty, his devotion. I will be with you to the very end, Peter said. And Jesus said, no, you won't. No, you won't, Peter. In fact, this very night, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny three times that you even know me. And sure enough, that's how it played out. Again, love is losing. Jesus, if you know the story, he retreats to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
He is so overcome with grief, he knows what his day is going to look like tomorrow morning. He knows what lies ahead. He's praying a grievous, pain-stricken prayer. He asks three of his disciples, hey man, pray with me. But they couldn't even do that. They fell asleep in the garden. He's betrayed by one of his own. Judas Iscariot kisses him on the cheek. That was a prearranged signal. That identified Jesus to the temple guard. They knew who to arrest. That kiss, by the way, has come to be known as the kiss of death. There Jesus is put into shackles. There's a scuffle among the disciples and the soldiers. One of the soldiers named Malchus, his ear is injured. And Jesus, because of his great love, even heals his enemy's ear. Again, looks like love is losing. All night... Jesus stands trial, five mock trials that in one way or another, legally or as according to Jewish custom, have been proven illegal with time. And by Friday morning, he's at his sixth hearing, his sixth trial. He stands before Pilate. And Pilate says to him, don't you realize that I have the power to set you free or to crucify you? And Jesus looked him in the eyes. And said, you would have no power over me had my Father in heaven not given it to you. Looks like love is losing. An hour later, he's on the cross. He's been betrayed by one of his own. He's been falsely accused. He's being jeered by the same crowd that cheered for him five days earlier on Sunday. They've insulted him. They've mocked him. He's been beaten and scourged, humiliated, and he hangs there dying on a cross. And what does he do? Because of his great love, he forgives his executioners. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Looks like love is losing. By Saturday morning, it's over. The lifeless body of Jesus Christ has been removed from the cross Friday before sunset and placed in a borrowed tomb. Ironic, isn't it? Five days earlier, he's riding into the city amidst the celebration on a borrowed donkey. Now he's dead and he's lying in a borrowed tomb. For the disciples, I mean, it's over. How did it go so horribly wrong? They had abandoned so much to follow him, and now look what it's gotten them. Not one of them expected resurrection, even though on multiple occasions Jesus had explained what was going to happen. They still didn't get it. Love has lost. Darkness has swallowed up the light. Death has overpowered life, and it shouldn't be like that. On Sunday morning, it wasn't like that. On Sunday morning, everything changed. On Sunday morning, love was triumphant. Look at John 20 and verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. She saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mark identifies two other women with Mary. Luke just uses the word women plural, but notice, John wants us to focus on Mary Magdalene, perhaps because 
John knew that Mary knew what it was to walk in darkness. Mary knew what it was to walk among the living dead. Mary knew what it felt like to be lost and without hope. But Jesus changed everything for Mary. Everything changed. In verses 2 through 10, Mary examines the tomb. It's empty. She's troubled. She runs back and finds the disciples. She comes across Peter and John first. She explains, the tomb is empty. They're confused. They run back. It's a race. They get to the tomb. They look inside, and they're bewildered. I mean, this doesn't make any sense to them. Again, none of the disciples were expecting resurrection. But the scene was troubling to them. Because it wasn't as if someone had stolen the body and carelessly discarded the grave clothes in the corner. No, the grave clothes still kind of held the shape of Jesus. It was though the body of Jesus had somehow passed through them. None of the disciples expected resurrection. Look at verse 11. So now Mary stood outside the tomb. She's crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the, t- to the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? She thought he was the gardener. And so she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I'll go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. Mary recognized his voice before she recognized him. And everything changed once again. For Mary. You see, what's strange to me is that none of the disciples could put the pieces together. I mean, think about this for a minute. After witnessing the miracles, the disciples saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They were there. The disciples were part of the crowd when Jesus fed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. They heard him teach. They knew everything he stood for. And in spite of the fact that he had assured them on multiple occasions that his road would be difficult, he would be handed over and crucified, he promised that love would win. He promised that life would conquer death. He promised that light would overpower the darkness. What John does in the remaining chapter, chapter 20, is he contrasts Mary at the beginning with Thomas at the end. Mary believed. Thomas did not. In fact, Thomas said, I won't believe until I can see the nail prints for myself. Mary heard his voice, and that's all it took. She believed. She knew what had happened. The tomb was completely empty. Dr. Chuck Swindoll writes the following. 
in our unstretched imagination, and I love that terminology, in our unstretched imagination. I love it because it is so true, tragically true. When's the last time your imagination has been stretched? We don't need our imagination stretched nowadays. Hollywood can stretch it for us, right, on the big screen. Google can answer every one of our questions. He continues, in our unstretched imaginations, we strain to make room in our thinking for miracles. Like Thomas, we're so used to living by sight rather than by faith, we're constantly looking for hands with nail prints. That's why some of you can overlook all of the evidence that supports resurrection and keep asking your same old question, I'm not really sure that God exists. Not really sure I can trust this book. We're too busy looking for hands with nail prints. Let me ask you a question. How supple, how flexible is your imagination? When was the last time that the impossible rearranged the furniture of your thinking? Here's a better way to ask it. When was the last time that sight bowed to faith regarding your relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, love came alive on Easter Sunday morning. It materialized. Everyone could see it. And love can come alive in us today. Love can empower you as a husband to honor your wife, to not only protect and provide for your family, but to truly lead and serve your family. Love can do that. Love can give you hope as you carry that burden. Love can give you courage to withstand the weariness and deal with the difficulty, but only when sight bows to faith and only when the impossible becomes possible can we respond to that kind of love. Again, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in him. You see, Easter is so much more than a religious holiday. Easter is a celebration of life. Friday's death brings about Sunday's life, and that's exactly the way it works with us. When you couple the death of Jesus Christ with my own personal death to self, I'm no longer the boss, I'm no longer king in my life, he is, that's when you come alive. John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, I've come into this world that you might have life and have it to the fullest. If you've never placed your faith or your trust in the risen, life-bringing Son of God, I can't think of a better day for you to do it than today.
Did you know that in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for you individually? He prayed for you on purpose. It's John chapter 17, somewhere around verse 20. Jesus is praying, and in his prayer, he says this. Father, thank you for these, my closest followers, who believe in me because they've seen me. And this is where he prays for you. But Father, I pray for those who will believe without seeing me based upon their testimony. I want to end our service today by praying for you. Father, look at all these people. So many needs are represented in this place. I know of marriages that are suffering. I know of wives that are unplugged. Husbands that don't seem to care. I know men and women in this room right now who doubt your existence. They question whether or not they can take this book seriously. So, Father, I pray for them. I pray for you. I pray that God would be very able, very capable in your life to help you carry whatever burden or weariness you possess. I pray that he would be more real to you than he's ever been before. And that you would experience the light and the life and the love that he's demonstrated for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would be real in this place. That you would rise up these men and women. That we simply, by the smiles on our faces, the hope that we share could impact this community. Father, on this of all days, the day we celebrate life over death, light over darkness, and love over hate, God, I pray that we would be testimonies, that you would demonstrate that light, that life, and that love. That is my prayer for you on this very special day. And I pray it because of my faith in the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Go make it a fantastic week. I'll see you next time. Happy Easter.